to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. As a matter of review, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is giving the Corinthians the big picture. You might remember this from last week and the week before. The big picture is that God is doing a wonderful, mighty work in reconciling the world to himself. And you and I are called to, enjoy, to join him. When people say, well, what is it that God is doing in the world? What's his purpose? What's our purpose? Well, it's very clear. God is doing a mighty work in reconciling the world to himself, bringing into balance that which is out of balance. For the Corinthians that were struggling with Paul, there was some some, um, uh, division, not only in the church, but also between their relationship. There was some conflict. For the Corinthians, being reconciled to God involves affirming Paul's ministry as God's co-worker and submitting to Paul's authority. Paul is also defending his ministry as an apostle by once again calling the attention to his faithfulness in his ministry amid the changing circumstances of his life, persecution and success, freedom with with jail, things in his life that's going on. Paul's ministry reflects God's power in spite of human weakness. Instead, the Corinthians view Paul's life as an embarrassment. If Paul truly was an apostle of God, then he would have success. His life would be great. God would not let him be in prison. God would not let him be tortured or be persecuted. However, we see that that's not the the mark of God's power on someone's life. is not always prosperity and health and wealth, but a true mark of a Christian is going to be marked with persecution. It's going to be marked with hard times. It's going to be marked with ridicule and a difficult life. In the beginning of this chapter, chapter 6, Paul instructed them that both he and the Corinthians were working together with God in that ministry of reconciliation. He was reminding them that they are God's ambassadors and that they are to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. And obviously, what they were involved in was anything but the ministry of reconciliation. Instead of bringing people together, they were creating factions and divisions and turmoil. Paul is calling those Corinthians that are still in rebellion against him to repent. And he reminds them that they are his spiritual children and he loves them. And he desires for them to respond to him in the same way that he responds to them. We saw that last week. The Corinthians' selfish, judgmental, and unforgiving attitude was not exhibiting the grace of God that had been poured out on through them by the new covenant. It was creating division in the church, fermenting rebellion against authority, and tainting the glory of God. We ended last week with Paul's call for them to widen their hearts towards him. Remember, 
Widen your hearts for me. Do not restrict. In other words, allow me in your life. Love me. Treat me as I treat you. And today, Paul will challenge the Corinthians' affections. He's going to challenge their attitudes. He's going to challenge their actions. And then lastly, he's going to challenge their alliances and their partnerships. So here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Read aloud silently as I read out loud. Paul goes on to say, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of God, of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Father, as we hear the words of Paul that are written uh, through the, the gifting of the Spirit, I pray that you would also send your Spirit to help us to interpret and to apply your Scripture. Lord, I pray that it would find fertile ground this morning. Let it soak in deeply. And Lord, would your work be accomplished? Allow me to speak words that are edifying, that are encouraging, but also, Lord, that are teaching, that leads us to repentance. Lord, I pray that you would challenge us to, to seek in our own heart, Lord, in these things. Are we uh, involved in the ministry of reconciliation? Lord, I pray that you would do the hard work that you've planned beforehand. In your name we pray. Amen. As we look at here, we're seeing something very similar to what Matt read earlier. There's going to be a lot of allusions here to the Israelites, as we read in Leviticus, that God is saying there is something different about the people of God. And what I want to see in verse 14 as we work our way through there is God is going to, or Paul, Paul is giving a command, he's giving a principle, he's showing a new identity, he's pointing to the character of God that leads to an exhortation and the result of obedience. And we're going to look at that this morning. First is look at the command. This is a very famous portion of Scripture. Most of us know it if you've been in church at any time. If you've been in a Christian school, by the way, anyone here ever went to a Christian school? Okay, this is probably imprinted on your mind in some ways. This is kind of like that billy club that they use many times in, in, in their standards and conducts. I pray that we try to capture what the Spirit truly means here. As he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase when you think of yoke. Many of you just may think of eggs or something of that context. But obviously, he's going back to uh, a farming type of uh, uh, illustration. I know many of you have said you've grown up in farms or you, or you understand the concept of being yoked together. And in it, it's something that's an illustration of, of mainly oxen or some type of animals that would be paired together with a harness in which they would pull to break ground or to pull something, pull a wagon. Whether it was two oxen, it could be two horses or two mules, something of that together. He says, you don't put one with the other. It would not make sense to put a horse with an ox, would it? They're different heights. They have different pulling uh, strategies. The yoke would not fit on both of them. It's kind of like anyone here ever been in Awana and did like the three-legged race? 
or just did a three-legged race. Uh, that is so much fun. I don't know if you've been involved. Maybe we ought to just do that for a, a Sunday this one morning. But a three-legged race, it's just where two people are together, and they tie you know, their middle legs together, and then they walk or run. Well, in Awanas, what you do is you would get two guys, and they would run around a circle as fast as they could against three other people, and the object was to go around, whether it was one lap, two lap, or three lap, and get into the middle and be first at it. Anyone ever tried that, by the way? Not only a three-legged race, but then trying to run in a circle? It is something else. Well, the goal, obviously, to be a successful in three-legged race is you're going to want someone that's about your same size. So you would not take someone like Matt and tie him up with me. Could you imagine that? I'm not going to bring him up here because it would be just too funny of a picture. But you just imagine, here we are like this and trying to walk. Our gates would be different. His stride would be longer. You know, it would be different weights, different speeds. It just not would make for a good tandem. In the same way, he's saying here, do not be in tandem with unbelievers. Now, that's a tough, tough statement. And we're going to explore what that kind of means. But it's going back and it's reminiscent of Old Testament commands in, in regards to making, mixing things that are clean and unclean. You weren't to do that. And there was a purpose. And one of the purposes Matt read to us is that you are a called out people. You're not to follow the customs of the world. The Bible says that God had judged the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And one of the things he says is do not do that. Many of us get in our Bible reading all the way up to about the end of Exodus. But when it comes to Leviticus, we usually start to drop out, right? Leviticus is one of those books that you just don't know what to do with. Well, in it, it's given the thing of do not be unequally yoked. It's saying here's the things that are clean and unclean. It's talking about how God calls us, or the Israelites so to, in there, how to live. And so here he comes, and he's bringing this back together. You might remember now, when they hear this phrase to them, they're thinking right back, do not be in tandem or yoked with unbelievers. In other words, don't be in alliance or partnership. Now, you and I might say, well, wait a second, what does that mean? It can mean so many different things. It can be misused and misapplied and and really be hurtful if we're not careful. What we're looking at is, in other words, he says, don't be aligned with something that is opposite. Just as you would not put me and Matt together, and then you wouldn't put me and Parker together in a three-legged race or any type of pulling contest, don't be in tandem or work together with those that are truly or totally opposite or spiritually incompatible. Really what it comes down to is unbelievers refer to non-Christians who espouse values and beliefs and practices that are in opposition, or I think a better word, those that are hostile to the Christian faith. In other words, he says, do not be in partnership or associate with those that are hostile or spiritually incompatible. He says they will not be able to work together. The partnership will not be fruitful. One always drags down the other, right? You're only as good as what? The weakest link, as that old phrase may go. In other words, he's reminding them in his first letter, he had said, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The problem with the Corinthians and why he has to give them this statement is that the Corinthians' alliances were tarnishing the testimony of God and its members. 
the people they were associating with and partying were tarnishing and creating division within the church. It muted the ministry of reconciliation entrusted to them. You might have heard this phrase, you know, you can only go so far as your friends. I had one uh, revivalist that used to say, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And there's some truth to that. The Bible already says in 1 Corinthians, Paul had written again in his first letter to them, he wrote, bad company ruins good morals. Let me say that again. Okay, this is the Holy Spirit speaking, not me. Bad company ruins good morals. Without raising your hands, how many of you could attest that that's true? Yeah? It happens. We probably all can look back and say, that I struggled because of my friends. Or you might have been that friend, and I'll have to tell you, I have been that friend that's been the bad morals, the bad company. Give you, you know, and I tell on myself, I, you know, I try to be transparent. I remember working KFC, 18, 19, 20 years old. Everyone knows I go to church. Everyone knows I went to a Christian school. But yet my life was anything but Christian. So let me ask you, when I stand in heaven and one of them stands with me and he says to Rob, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into heaven. And then there's going to be Matt Russo or Mike Tessier or one of the others that are sitting there and they look and they look at me and they see I get to go and they don't. And they say, wait a second, he was a Christian? He acted no different. What about that ministry of reconciliation, Rob, that you were supposed to be doing as a young person? Well, I could do that anytime. I lose an opportunity. And I have to sadly admit that I tarnished the good name of our Lord. Now, I don't know where they are. They're lost. We can't find them. What good testimony. If they were to hear today I was a pastor, it would probably bring a chuckle. But see, there's opportunities lost. And Paul is reminded, remember I wrote to you a letter earlier that bad company ruins good morals? He also says to the church of Galatia, or Corinthians, he also says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's warning them here, the people and the way that you associate ruins or, ta- or, or, or mutes the very mission that God has gave you too. So the command is not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and that's a very difficult command. But it points to a principle, and that's the principle that we're going to get here in verse 14b, the second part of it. For he asks some rhetorical questions, some common sense questions. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What does right have to do with wrong? What's the answer? None. What fellowship has light with darkness? When one comes, the other flees, correct? We see that just in nature. What accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is an old Hebrew word meaning worthless one. And that's in contrast with the one who is worthy. So what does the one who is worthy have to do with the worthless one? The answer is what? You can shout it. Nothing. Thank you. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Inherit the kingdom of God. They inherit something much worse. 
And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now this would be very striking because the answer would be nothing, nothing at all. Never should any idol ever go into the temple. Whether it was the tabernacle in the Exodus and David or the temple that Solomon built. There were no idols to be in there. And you see in Scripture when that happens just how unclean it made it. In other words, he says, your desire should be to partner with God. We are fellowship with Him. And if we're to fellowship with God, how can we also fellowship with the things that are against God? It cannot be that way. And the principle points to a new identity as we look in verse 16. For he says, you are the temple of the living God. And I think this is something that many times we understand, but yet we don't recognize how far out that goes and the implication that means. For the temple of God was very, very holy. And when he's talking about the temple of God, he's speaking of the most holy place, the holy of holies. For in the tabernacle as well as the temple, Gentiles could come into a certain portion of it, and then some of the Israelites can come to another, but only the holy priest, the high priest, could go into the most holy place. And only then, once a year, to bring atonement. And now we see that when Christ was, uh, was, was died, that that temple, that veil, you might remember, to the Holy of Holies, was rent. It was torn down supernaturally, showing us that no longer is the temple of God residing in some physical building, but the temple of God is now within His people. And I want to share with you, I think there's two things that we need to recognize is that the temple of God is not only us individual. That's what you namely think of. And many times that's used to say, well, you know, you shouldn't smoke, you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't do anything that's harmful to the temple of God. And that's what is mainly used many times in, in, in Christian churches and schools and things of that nature. And there is that. I think that's more downstream than it is the headwaters. For I also believe that the temple of God is the church. I mentioned a little bit about this Sunday morning in Sunday school is that God has called us to called us out, and we are that building, all of us together. And what he's saying is, is church, do not be unequally yoked. He's saying to the individual Christian, do not be unequally yoked. You have a new identity. You're no longer sinners. You're no longer disobedient children or enemies of God. You are the temple of the living God, identifying both the church and the individual believer. This command and this principle and this identity points to the very character of God as we go into verse 16. For in here we see the covenant. You might remember I've shared with you is that when you see a thou shall and a thou shall not in the Bible, is that we need to find out why is it? What's the principle behind it? For the precept leads to a principle which leads to the person. And in this case, the precept do not be unequally yoked with believers, leads to the principle is that we're not to have any partnership with those, those things that are unclean, and it leads to the person or the character of God. For verse 16c says, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We see the beginnings of a covenant. And the first is a promise. And what's that promise? I will make my dwelling among them, I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a great promise. God says there is going to be an intimate relationship between me and the church. 
I'm going to call them out and they will be mine. But as in any covenant, there's some conditions. You see this in verse 17. The conditions are simple. He says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. He says, then I will welcome you. There's a condition. There's a part where God says, this is what you must do for me to live and dwell among you. And then we see the reward or the benefit for those who do so. For he says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What a great thing. God says, listen, I will be among you. I will walk among you. All you need to do is come out. Come out from that which is unclean. And I will be a father to you. Now this is a collection of like three different uh, um, Old Testament uh, saying, uh, passages. And obviously in the beginning they were speaking of Israel and Israel's rest- restoration. But what we see now, Paul through the Holy Spirit is saying that is now applied also to the church. Not an exclusion to Israel, but in addition. He says, you too are my called out people. And as we saw several weeks ago, the new covenant that was given in Ezekiel to those in Jeremiah to the children of Israel is now also applied to us. We now become joint heirs. And as Israel was called out to live separately, we also are called to live out. Why? Because we see the implicit in here, the character and person of God, is that he's the Lord Almighty. He's the holy God. And God cannot commune with those things that are unclean. And he says, live out your new identity as the temple of God. There's a promise, there's a condition, and there's reward. The wonderful thing is that the condition is something that's based on a work that Jesus did for us and not on ourselves. But yet we're to live out what Christ has done in making us clean. I want to go to verse 7, verse 1, before we see an exhortation. Paul says, here's a command, don't be unequally yoked. The reason why is because what fellowship, what partnership do these two things have? And we, we see through that there's none, it's common sense. He says you have a new identity and you need to realize that. And as a new identity, you need to recognize why, because it points to an almighty all whole, or holy God. And he says, since we have these promises, what are the promises? The promises of restoration. The promises of reconciliation. The promise that he will make his dwelling among us, that he will walk among us, that he'll be our God and we'll be his people. That he'll be like a father and we'll be sons and daughters to him. He says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit. Just as Israel was called out to be separate from the world, he calls us out to be separate from the world also. Why? So we may glorify him. So others may say, look, there's something different about them. Sad to say that when I was young, there was no difference between me and the rest. So the ministry of reconciliation could not even be found. Even in my words, if I were to say it, it would fall on deaf ears because your actions speak louder, right, than your words. 
To them, there was no difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And unfortunately, that's what's happening today many times. That's what was happening at the church of Corinth. The result of cleansing ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit leads to holiness, as we see in the rest of that verse. For the result of obedience, if we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, it says it brings to holiness, or bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In other words, remember God says, I began a good work in you. He says in Romans that his plan from the beginning of the world was to make us into the image of his Son. Be holy as I am holy. The way we do that is after he regenerates our hearts, after we become born again and we respond in faith and trust in him, he begins to cleanse us not only from our sins, past, present, and future, but he begins to make us more like Christ and freer from sin. That's the Christian life. Looking forward to that day when it's completed, when Christ comes back. Until that day, we're to fight that fight. Bringing holiness completion as we call out or call out and we cleanse ourselves. To the Corinthians, Paul is simply commanding them to remove or to distance themselves from rebellious ones. Remember, there was a fermenting rebellion and they were saying, Paul, we don't trust you. Paul, we don't want to listen to you. Paul, we don't want to repent. Who are you to say anything to us about our style of living? But Paul is reminding them that rebellion is almost as a sin of witchcraft or divination, as it says in 1 Samuel. He says, presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. He says, do not live that type of life. And you may say, wait a second, well, how were the Corinthians compromising their identity in Christ? Well, we looked at this last year as we went through 1 Corinthians. There was sexual sin involving incest and prostitutes. It was happening in the church. They were allowing it to happen. They were not dealing with the sin. There was divisions in the church as everyone was trying to pull who their, who their leader was. There was lawsuits against each other. There was unforgiveness. There was idolatry as they were participating in idol worship and eating food devoted to idols. And lastly, there was prejudice and mistreatment of each other that even found its way into as they celebrated the Lord's Supper and Communion. See, the church had ceased to be the church. For those who would walk into the church of Corinth, they would see the same type of thing almost as if they were to go into the temples of the pagans. Instead of being an ambassador for the ministry of reconciliation and of the new covenant, they looked just like the world, tainting the work that God was doing. In other words, what he's saying is there ought to be a difference. The way that you're associating yourself, the people that you're partnering with, the way that you're living your life is wrong. It does not show that you have the grace of God living in you. Hence why he said last week, do not receive it in vain. There ought to be a difference among you. So I would ask in the churches of America, is there a difference? When people hear the word of God, do they hear the same thing as they would hear on a Hallmark card? 
Is there anything different here than what you get from Dr. Phil or Oprah or from one of the other gurus? Or do we find the Word of God preached and taught? Do we see the men and women that call and profess themselves to be Christians, do we see them living lives that are glorifying to God? Or do we see ourselves associated and doing the same things that the world does? Do we entertain ourselves in the same way? The Bible says that there's a warning here that he gives to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, why don't you turn to it very quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You might recall this. Here are some warnings. Paul is saying, you are not living out your profession of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 9. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So why are you acting the old way? It should not be so. See, here's the problem. If you and I live like the world, if there is no difference between our life and our actions and attitudes than that of the world, why would they ever listen? Listen. Why would they say, they, why can't I inherit the kingdom of God? I'm the same as you. We lose its power. The message is lost. Paul contrasts the difference between believers and unbelievers in Galatians chapter 5. Turn to that very quickly, if you're able to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. Paul contrasts the difference between believers and unbelievers. He says, do not be unequally yoked among them. Do not partner with those that are hostile to the things of God. They need to hear that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, as he contrasts the differences. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, you're going to see many of the same things echoed here. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy and drunkenness. These are things that were happening at the church of Corinth. They were getting drunk at communion. Orgies and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will what? Not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a message that our friends and our loved ones and those that we work with, they need to hear it as difficult and as tough as it is. They need to hear that. But if our lifestyles match theirs, where's the power? Where's the honesty? Where's the integrity? But look on what he says in verse 22. But he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
So when he says, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit, what does he say? He says there is a difference. If you profess Christ, your, mar- your life should be marked differently from the world. And if that's the case, how can you partner with someone in such a way? Now, I think for this most part, you understand what I'm saying. It's pretty clear. I don't have to, there's no Greek words that we need to parse, and there's no difficult doctrine here. It's pretty simple. But I think it's the application that sometimes can be lost and, again, misused. For the Corinthians, he's saying your church, your life, is marked in the same way as the world's, and in that you've lost any credibility, and you're not living out what God has called you to do. For a Christian, you're to cleanse yourself. There ought to be difference. The way that we live and the way that we act and the way that we think should be markedly different. So what about us today? Because to be honest, it's very difficult to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. How do we handle that? Well, for most, if you're a Christian school kid, probably the most part this was used was in dating, right? No missionary dating allowed. Well, you know, I'm not going to say, I don't think that's a good thing, but there are times where it has worked. But yet really what he's saying is more than just be careful who you date, but it has a lot of implications. So in what way and to what degree does this relate to me in my relationships? Well, in friendships, I think you need to be careful. I think if your best friends are people that are hostile to the things of God, you may want to rethink that friendship. I believe you probably should. For how can two walk together unless they what? Agree. Who are you doing the three-legged race with? And you need to be very, very careful. If you can't talk about church, if you can't talk about the things of God, if they're hostile to those things, then your degree of friendship may be a little bit different. And that may look differently to everyone. I can't tell you exactly. God has not said, well, this is the level you need to be. I think God gives us some wisdom, and he gives us some leeway to work that out. But yet we need to be careful with our friendships. We need to find out bad company ruins good morals. So we need to be very careful there. In our dating, obviously, and in our marriages. My mom and dad were married uh, at young Uh, She got saved later. Uh, He didn't for 30 years. And it was a difficult time for them sometimes. Uh, God's grace covered it and allowed many things to go smoothly, but I know other marriages that haven't. And so you need to be careful. How can a marriage go if two people don't walk together and they don't agree? In businesses, this is something that can be difficult. What about a Christian and a non-Christian? They're in business together. Can it work? Yes. But you understand that there'll be difficulties there especially if they're hostile to the things of God. may have trouble in just being honest with your taxes, honest with your pay, honest with the financials. In, in volunteer work, we need to be careful who we partner with. There are many times that we have to be careful, even with the Friendly Center when we're doing business there. What are some things there that might be unequally yoked? And sometimes there's a thin line that sometimes that can differentiate that. It'll have implications in our politics on those that are hostile to God and those that aren't. And then also, probably the one I think many times that strikes me is the entertainment. And you say, wait a second, entertainment, what are you talking about? Well, that could be the way that we go out and we enjoy ourselves, or it could be just the entertainment that we set at home by ourselves and just watch TV. 
Are we being unequally yoked? Are we allowing ourselves to watch and, and celebrate things that are hostile to God? And we find ourselves doing that, do we not? Laughing with those things and, and saying, well, here's a guilty pleasure. We're all guilty of those types of things. I can't tell you how many times I've watched something and say, wait a second, this whole thing is just really ungodly. Why am I enjoying it? The Bible says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But there's a question then. How does this all relate to evangelism? I'm in the world. How am I to love and share the gospel if I'm not to be unequally yoked? Does that mean that I'm at an enemy with someone who's an unbeliever? No. Obviously, that's not what the Bible called us to do. Christ looked on the crowds and had what? Compassion. Well, Colossians, Paul says to the church of Colossians, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Making the best use of time, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are to be involved with those that do not know Christ. We're to be involved with them in a way that's loving, that's kind, and that's caring, and that gives us the credibility to share. Let me share with you an almighty God. Now, sometimes that may mean that we have to make uncomfortable choices. There may be times that I'll have to tell you uh, as a pastor that I have to say, you know what, I, I'm not going to go do that. There will be times that even in a volunteer situation, they've asked me to pray, and then they ask me to pray uh, in somebody, not in Jesus' name, and I have to come and say, well, I'm sorry. Very uncomfortable. As a chaplain for the fire department, there are times in which there's some activities where they know that I won't participate in, and sometimes it's difficult. But we don't do it judgmental, but we do it loving. Why? Because there ought to be a difference between those who profess Christ and those that need Christ. You and I must be salt and light to a world desperate, desperate for the truth. They're looking everywhere. They're going everywhere. They're searching for it. And we have what it is that the world needs. Peter, writing in his first letter, says, Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I pray today that God would help us to discern when he says, do not be unequally yoked, but to cleanse yourself from all uncleanness, that God will give us not only the strength to follow through, but also to hold true to the promise of him being our God, but that we would do so with wisdom as we reflect God, the ministry of reconciliation. Father, we come before you, and I ask for your strength. This is a tough message. It's not one that we like to talk about because it can be uncomfortable. But Lord, it's in your word, and Lord, you've called us to be called out and to live lives that are markedly different, that glorify you. Lord, I pray that people will be able to look at our church, they'll be looking at us as, as individuals, and they'll see that something is different, Lord, and maybe it will just uh, uh, whet their curiosity. And Lord, may we be able to point them to the one who knows all things. Lord, we thank you for this. 
In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.